So, you know, there's, there's this cliche that necessity is the mother of invention. And I think, you know, I, I wrote a, an article the other day where I said, well, maybe desperation is the father of invention. But, you know, I think whether it's through desperation or just being highly responsive and agile to shifting situations, you know, a bunch of retailers are, are making things happen. You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Retail Remix. I'm Alicia Esposito, and I'm recording today uh, from my at-home studio in New Jersey. Uh, We're all still dealing with the new reality surrounding COVID-19, so I hope you're all safe and well. Um, Of course, there are a lot of significant changes and trends that are happening right now in our industry. So I wanted to take the time to sit down with Steve Dennis, who is the founder and president of Sageberry Consulting. Um, He's been doing a lot of writing, a lot of researching around these new realities, um, but also a lot of the disruption and innovation that's been happening in the industry for quite some time now. Um, He's a regular contributor to Forbes, and he now has a new book um, called Remarkable Retail, where he share some key ingredients to success. Um, so we go in a lot of different directions during our conversation, looking at the short term or what's happening today and what's possible for the future. But uh, Steve has decades of experience and a lot of tactical takeaways, I think, for everyone listening. So I'm going to stop talking and let him share his uh, nuggets of wisdom. Hope you enjoy it. So Steve, thanks so much for taking the time out. Uh, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So we're recording this conversation officially the 1st of April. Uh, March was a very long month. And of course, you know, we're, we're navigating this new reality, not just as individuals, but as business owners, business executives. You, of course, are keeping a constant pulse on what's happening with COVID-19, the implications for retailers specifically. So I thought that'd be an appropriate place to start out. You know, what's your take on where we stand today, possible shifts or, or changes, and how this may trickle down into the months to come? I know there are still a lot of uncertainties, but what are you currently seeing? Sure. Well, yeah, I think we're really in unprecedented times. You know, I think, unfortunately, from a big picture standpoint, I think things are likely to get worse before they get better. You know, as we sit here on April 1st, I think it's hard to know how much longer the depth of the economic impact and obviously the human impact is going to be. You know, I think the two big things I've been tending to point out most recently, one is, and I think this is true about a lot of things. In fact, I have a whole chapter on this in my new book, is that the future's distributed unevenly. You know, different situations hit different people and different retailers in different ways. So an example specifically from COVID-19 is, you know, we're seeing certain essential providers of products, grocery stores and so forth, actually doing quite well in terms of their business. You know, they're having a hard time in many cases keeping up with demand. In many cases, they're hiring more people. And so if you look at their financial results, They're looking quite good and probably will continue to look good. And then certainly at the other end of the spectrum, you have restaurants, department stores, and and a lot of other retailers that for all intents and purposes are are completely closed or they may be maintaining their e-commerce business, but, um, you know, as a percent of the total, it's very um, minimal. So one, I think we just need to keep 
aware that no matter how long this lasts, it's going to f- affect different categories, different competitors in different ways. You know, the other thing is it just really, and I hate to be so negative about it, but I think any retailer that I can think about that went into this crisis in a weakened position, and by a weakened position, I mean both competitively not being um, meeting customers' needs while not having real great competitive differentiation, and went into it with a weak balance sheet or you know limited liquidity, you know, this just such exacerbates the problems. And so I think a lot of weak retailers, unfortunately, aren't going to make it through this or will have to take you know really, really drastic action to their business to, to stay afloat. Yeah, and I know, like like you said, it, it's hard to get out of the negative mindset or the negative implications, but there have been some really fascinating cases of brands, retailers that have adapted. Like you said, a lot of them are in the situation where they're selling necessary products, you know, paper products, groceries, et cetera. So it's in their best interest to adapt and innovate, but there have been some glimmers of innovation pivoting as a business or or a product developer. So I have to ask you, I mean, what cases have been most exceptional in in your eyes as someone who has studied and engaged and participated in the industry so successfully? I mean, what do you think has the most value or could have the most prolonged impact on the industry? Well, there's probably several. The, The one that comes to mind, I think, is, I guess, for lack of a better term, it's it's how a few retailers have really accelerated their omni-channel capabilities. I, I like to refer to it more as, as harmonized retail. But, you know, for example, if you take a look at what Best Buy has done, they were already pretty well developed in buy online, pick up in store, and a, a number of other integrated cross-channel type of capabilities. But when their stores needed to close or they chose to close them, they pivoted pretty quickly into offering curbside pickup and delivery at their stores. And, you know, it's the same kind of thing we've seen lots of restaurants do in, in drugstores and, and others. But I think that's one example. The at-home group, which is based here in Dallas, where I live, they have been working on some of their omni-channel capabilities for quite some time. And as I understand it, they weren't really quite ready to pull the trigger on some of these things. But the crisis has forced them, I guess you could say, to get out there and put some of the things that they were thinking about or piloting into place on a, on a greater scale. So, you know, there's there's this cliche that necessity is the mother of invention. And I think, you know, I, I wrote a, an article the other day where I said, well, maybe desperation is the father of invention. But, you know, I think whether it's through desperation or just being highly responsive and agile to shifting situations, you know, a bunch of retailers are, are making things happen. Yeah. I love that, Steve. And I think it it really is such a a critical juncture. And I think a lot of it is, you know, there's a saying that goes something along the lines of it's not what happens to you, but how you respond to what happens to you, mm-hmm. right? So um, I right. think that ties to the bigger story around everything that we've been hearing around innovation in retail, right? The challenges, yeah. usually that failure, that uh, you know, fear of failure or, or fear of being agile and acting fast. Um, so do you think that this will possibly change some businesses' perceptions around, you know, what's required to innovate successfully or, you know, change the boundaries of what's possible, change their way of thinking at all? Well, and maybe maybe I'm just relentlessly cynical having been doing this for a while, but I mean, <laughs> I'd, certainly, I'd certainly like to think that. 
And, you know, this particular Black Swan event or whatever you want to call it, I think is so profound that perhaps it's hard to extrapolate from past experiences. But one of the big themes in what I've been speaking about and writing about and certainly get into in, in my new book is this idea that so many of the retailers that have gotten themselves into trouble over, you know, whether it's the last few years or, or longer, basically last watched the last 20 years happen to them. And by that, I mean, there have been so many customer trends, technology trends, and so forth, which I think have been pretty obvious if you were paying any attention at all. And, you know, I suspect in some cases, retailers weren't innovative because they weren't spending enough time studying the technology and and understanding their customers and so forth. But I can tell you from personal experiences at retailers where I worked in senior roles, as well as some that I've consulted with, a lot of the retailers were quite aware of how profound customer behavior was, was changing and how digital technology and other things were disrupting business, but they mostly watched. And to your point, I think in many cases that is, you know, a cultural thing that they're fearful of change. They don't have the processes or the capabilities to really make innovation happen on a big scale. So I don't know. I mean, I I just have seen so many retailers where it's been absolutely obvious how much trouble they were in or going to be for years that did not act or did not act with any real significant action. So I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, the, the, I think the thing that's so hard today, even, and I would say this, you know, separate from, from COVID-19, COVID-19 has only made it that much worse, is that it's really hard to make strategy uh, when you're at the edge of a precipice, you know, when you're close to that edge, when you've lost customer relevance, when maybe you've got the wrong real estate or you haven't made the technology investments you should have, and you don't have a lot of cash in the bank, then even if you have the best ideas, it's pretty hard, both from a risk standpoint, but more from a time and capital standpoint, to really make those changes to become truly remarkable. So, you know, now so many retailers are finding themselves much more challenged, and I think it's going to be that much harder for them to change. So my guess is that the retailers and other kinds of brands more broadly that already were pretty good at innovation and were on the right trajectory, this events will cause them to step on the gas. And sadly, I think many of the ones that, that really missed the boat on this for many years will, will either go away or they'll just find themselves continuing to, to struggle and not take the kind of risks that need to. Got it. Let's get into that because I know you, you've been writing about this topic pretty extensively on Forbes and, and all your other channels. And we'll get into your book in a minute, which is very exciting to talk about with you. But the one phrase that, you know, really struck me was this notion of, you know, the collapse of the middle. So I, I'd love for right. you to kind of summarize, you know, your take on what that is, what that means. Is it really just that, you know, moment of truth for the ones that have been struggling for so long, the the ones that are kind of sticking to the status quo, not quickly adapting, like those are the ones that, are, that will eventually die out? You know, what, what does it mean to essentially all of the retail executives that may be listening right now? Sure. Well, so what I started to notice, I don't know, probably seven or eight years ago, was that success, so, so if you think about placing business models on, on a continuum, so on the left-hand side of that continuum, if you think about retail business models that are essentially anchored in 
low price, great value, ultimate convenience, uh, great assortment, you know, those, those sort of things. So think about Walmart or Costco, Amazon, et cetera. And then at the other end of the spectrum, retailers that were either more, more premium, you know, high-end products, unique products, high level of service. So that can be anything from a Neiman Marcus or Saks. Could be a great specialty retailer like Lumen Sonoma or Restoration Harbor or what have you. What I what I started to notice is that at either end of the spectrum, there was, you know, for the most part, if those brands were executing well, a pretty good success. And that most of the troubles were occurring in what I now refer to as this kind of mediocre or boring middle. These brands that were neither the best value or the most convenient had the best assortment, et cetera, nor were they differentiated on more experiential elements or unique product, you know, so that's everywhere, you know, sort of the usual suspects of Sears, JCPenney, Macy's, Toys R Us, et cetera. So I started to notice this phenomenon and I started to refer to this as retail's great bifurcation that, you know, there were the real haves and have nots and it was becoming pretty clear uh, where you needed to play if you had any, any chance. And then I just continued to see that accelerate. And then a few years ago, Deloitte did a study on this, which I worked up with them a little bit on, which really provided more data to support that this phenomenon was going on. And so, you know, more or less strategically, I was, I've been saying to clients in my writing that it's really death in the middle, that you have to either go strongly towards that value convenience side of the spectrum or you have to go in the other direction, but staying in the middle is just not tenable. And you know, and a lot of this relates to how the internet has changed things, because clearly with the internet and being able to get information on products and shop from anywhere in the world and understand the right price to pay, I mean, all, all these factors have made it increasingly difficult for these kind of good enough brands to survive. So these pressures have just been building. And so, the collapse in the middle is this phenomenon that I've been seeing going on for a number of years now. It's you know a lot about what I talk about, the need for retailers to become more remarkable. And unfortunately, I think that COVID-19 is, is just going to accelerate this collapse because those, as I was saying earlier, those retailers that went into this recession, depression, whatever you want to call it, weak, are not going to be helped by this and in many cases will be will be hurt just because they don't have business to, to keep their doors open. Got it. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. But before we dig into more about the book and, you know, how this notion of collapse of the middle is kind of ever present and, and guides the principles that you outline, I do want to ask, you know, going back to this whole concept about the implications for mall developers specifically, I mean, obviously everything's essentially closed right now, right? And, you know, there's no way around that. But because so many of these malls do include a lot of these retailers that are in the middle, what are the implications? What's the domino effect that we may be seeing as a result of the mall experience? Because we've been seeing a lot around, you know, oh, it's going to be more community driven, more experiential, right, right. A, a lot around that. But I mean, what, what's your take around, you know, it could be near near term or, or long term. I mean, where do you think the mall space is, is really headed? So as you probably know, the, the regional malls have been in pretty steady 
albeit relatively slow decline for a long time. I, I worked back at Sears many, many years ago. And, and even in about 2002, 2003, it was pretty obvious that the mall, most of the mall anchors were struggling. And therefore, many of these malls that were relying on, on these moderate department stores were likely to face problems. So it's been a pretty slow decline. It's been accelerated. A lot of people like to blame Amazon, but it's actually mostly been accelerated by off-price retailers and dollar stores and more discount side of things. But really what you see in the regional malls is there are probably a couple hundred that, at least going into this year, were doing quite well. And then the rest of them, for the most part, were anywhere from in deep trouble to at best mediocre. So much, much like I think the the middle of the retailer world will collapse, the COVID-19 experience will only accelerate a trend to those kind of second tier and third tier malls, either going out of business or being massively repurposed. Now we're already seeing a lot of that repurposing going on. In some cases, you know, the whole mall is being bulldozed and being turned into mixed use development or what have you. In other cases, seeing pretty aggressively retenanting, if that's a word, um, you know, we're, as you point out, you know, health clubs, entertainment, and so forth are brought in. So I think all those trends will continue. I think the hard thing to know beyond the bulk of the impact of COVID-19 is how profoundly will consumer behavior change? Will we just kind of go back to the trend that we've, these long-term trends we've seen for two decades plus? Or will consumers fundamentally be less inclined to shop in physical stores, to go to big gathering places like regional malls? I mean, that, that's a really hard thing to ascertain at this point. But certainly, if there were a profound shift in the way customers think about being out in physical space, you know, that, that could make the troubles that already exist that much more problematic. But I, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, I think this is such a different kind of experience. I've done a lot of customer research over the years. Customers say a lot of things in the middle of a crisis and then often don't do those things longer term. I mean, we certainly saw that post 9-11, post financial crisis, but this is a different beast for sure. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And it will be interesting to see how the consumer side evolves. I mean, obviously, we're, we're seeing that pivot to uh, e-commerce, obviously. And as a result, a, a lot of time and attention being put into not just the e-commerce experience, but getting those marketing and advertising dollars reallocated. So um, definitely, there's a whole other conversation there. But I do want to get into the book because, again, I think a lot of these topics are, are really connected to a lot of the, the work you've been doing, a lot of the consulting, the the you know lectures you've been giving. So th- this podcast will be out, I think, right after your book comes out. So, you know, it's a really exciting time for you. The book will be released April 14th. Um, so have to ask, I mean, again, just given your rich history in retail, a lot of conversations you've likely had, what was your key inspiration for writing this book? Was it based on any overarching conversations that you've had, any key challenges that kept bubbling up in your work that that helped drive this? Well, you know, there are a few things that motivated me. I, I mean, uh, at one level, I have been wanting to write a book for a while. I don't know if it's sort of a bucket list thing or, you know, some people say they have a book in them and they just need to get it out. And I, I do a lot of writing and so I enjoy it. 
But I really struggled for a bunch of years to get a, a handle on what I wanted to write about. And I had a few false starts, but I feel like about three years ago or so, a few things started to coalesce. One is I thought there were some false narratives that were developing that I, you know, I did try to address in my Forbes writing and keynotes and whatnot. Um, but for an example, I, mean, I think this talk that physical retail was going to go away, I think was just nonsensical. I think that a lot of the hyper-focus on e-commerce versus brick and mortar as if they're separate things was not consistent with my experience and I did not think was a helpful way to think about it. And there, and there were a few others. And so I started to really develop my ideas around that. I started to speak about it a little bit more. And then, I don't know, about two years ago, I felt like the narrative of, of the book started to come together. I was working on this framework that I call the Eight Essentials of Remarkable Retail, which I've been playing around with for a while. And then I started to write about it and I started to speak about it and I started to talk with colleagues about it. And, then, and it all just started to gel. So then it was just a matter of sitting down and, and actually writing the darn thing. But, uh, you know, it just, it just felt like it was coming together. I wanted to get it out. I think the other, I guess, more practical thing is, you know, there are only so many people I can reach through consulting work or workshops or speeches. And so I think there were a lot of lessons, or I hope there were a lot of lessons in the book for smaller retailers that don't necessarily have the ability to hire a consultant or bring the staff on or go to all sorts of conferences, even if we're having conferences these days. And so to me, that was more just something I wanted to leave <laughs> leave for the world, so to speak. It's hard to say that without sounding sort of grandiose, but I felt like hopefully if my ideas could be helpful to, to more people, that, that a book was a great way of getting them out there. Well, that's great. And I think as a writer, just sitting down and writing the darn thing, I definitely empathize with that. Um, <laughs> but uh, Sounds a little easier than it actually is, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's dig into those eight essential strategies because I love the notion of giving readers, not just the stories, right, behind your work, your your conversations, your experiences, but also just something practical to take away and apply to their business, right? Like that's where the gold nugget of value is, I feel like. So what was your process for, you know, uncovering what those eight strategies were? Did they change at all? And, you know, why don't you give us a little high level teaser of some of those little nuggets that, you know, everyone can expect? Sure. So, well, some of them emerged or started to emerge back when I was head of strategy and marketing at the Neiman Marcus Group, because when we were trying to articulate some of the actions we wanted to take to grow our business, part of what we had to do was put some sort of framework together to try to explain what we thought was important. So a few of the, the concepts kind of started to coalesce many years ago for, for executive team presentations and and board presentations. And then when I went out on my own as a consultant, I also felt like, you know, a lot of consultants, you have to have some sort of framework to try to explain what you think is important. And so I started to play around with different ways of thinking about it. And I think if you go back five or six years ago, I was talking about four or five pieces that I thought were really important. But then I really started as I worked with clients and I talked to other people about it, I started pressure testing some of these ideas. I started doing research, not initially so much for the book, but for just my own edification. Um, and then it deepened as I started working on the book. And so 
I really kind of test drove the framework over several years. And then I started to see if I could make sense of it in my speeches and then ultimately in the book. So it's been a very iterative process. And, you know, I've really settled on the aid in the last couple of years. But one, one thing I'm careful, uh, and so I'll just say the eight. So it's digitally enabled, human-centered, harmonized, which is kind of my term for omni-channel, mobile, personal, connected, memorable, and radical. And, you know, one of the things which I hopefully explain reasonably well in the book is that these are not eight separate strategies. They are really components of becoming more remarkable. And, you know, it's hard to write a book or give a speech or write an article that will serve every possible situation that brands may find themselves in. So, you know, I'm careful to say that some or all of these essentials will be different in their importance and impact depending upon your particular situation. But what I have found is that virtually all the retailers that are being successful today distinguish themselves on most, if not all, of these eight essentials. So in a way, they're sort of ingredients to a recipe for success. And the first six, what I'm finding, and particularly noticing this in the current crisis, is the first six are almost becoming table stakes for a lot of retailers that if you aren't very well versed and aren't deploying six of the eight, chances are you're going to be falling behind or risk falling behind. The last two, memorable and radical, are more differentiators. I think these are the places where most retailers can really potentially distinguish themselves. So particularly with memorable, I give quite a lot of examples of different ways that retailers are creating more memorable brands, more memorable experiences. Oh, that's great. Great explanation. So, you know, we, we, we've kind of talked about directly or indirectly that the whole notion of boring retail or retail as we know it is dead, mm-hmm. right? And then that great experience is really key. So what is that really, if you were to summarize what a great experience is, quote unquote, what would that encapsulate? What, what would that include? I mean, obviously, other than the points in the recipe that, that you just shared. I mean, what, like, if it's something you feel or see, like, how would you describe it? Well, so not to evade the question too much, but I will come back with a more specific answer. But one of, one of, I think, the least helpful terms that people are using in retail today is experience, because I think it's very poorly defined. I know some people even talked about like measuring return on experience. And I think, you know, that just sort of begs the question of well, what do we mean when we talk about an experience? Because to me, at one level, all of retail is experiential. And so I think what it's pointing to is how emotionally customers connect with our brand. But I think, you know, however you want to define experience, I think if we want to create a remarkable business model, We want to create these memorable moments for customers and the essential components of being memorable are number one, being unique. Number two, being intensely customer relevant. So, you know, you can be unique, but the customer doesn't care. So I think particularly in this world of abundant choice and incredible competition and all the other pressures, not just from the current crisis, it's, you know, that much more important to really meet customers' needs and desires in an intense way. Another component is to be authentic. 
I think there are plenty of things that retailers do which might be worth doing, but they're not really intrinsic to the brand. So it's great to have a coffee shop or a bicycle or you know some other piece of visual merchandising. Some people call that experiential. I don't think it is because it doesn't really drive the brand connection forward. But the last one, which is really at the essence of why I use the term remarkable retail, stealing remarkable from my friend Seth Godin, is we have to create these experiences, these connections, these moments, however you want to define it, that really compel customers to connect with us in an emotional way. But the remarkable part is that they're willing to talk about it, that they're willing to share the story of our brand with our friends and colleagues. And, you know, that's more than just an Instagrammable moment, though that's, that's part of it. But the stories that stick and the stories that spread are those that connect with customers in really intensely relevant ways and that really stand head and shoulders above the crowd. That was a great breakdown, Steve. Thank you. So if we were to take a step back and look at where retail is today, as far as ticking all those boxes or or meeting those needs and expectations, is there one particular area or maybe even two where retail is really struggling or maybe hasn't emphasize that that focus as much as they should is it i know everyone's talking about authenticity now is that is that key or where are the gaps i, I guess is really the question well you know it's, it's hard to give one example but i think if what i usually if to the extent i try to give somewhat generic advice and i definitely get into this in more detail in the book but you know and it's a cliche but so many retailers still don't do it we have to really understand our customers at a very very deep level and that means we have to really have very useful customer segmentation. We have to understand the various customer journeys that our customers go through. And we have to figure out how to not only reduce the pain points or friction points, or I call them discordant notes, um, but you know, where do we amplify the wow in that customer journey? So you know, that's going to be really different depending on what sort of retailer you are. You know, Amazon Go is a wow and memorable because it's so ultra frictionless. You know, they've, they've taken, for people that are familiar with the cashier equals checkout, you know, they've designed a business model and used this technology that allow people to get in and out of the store extremely quickly, but it's also the particular merchandise selection and location and so forth that makes it remarkable. You know, for other retailers like, say, Restoration Hardware with their gallery stores, you know, what's remarkable there is the size of the store, the ambiance, the great unique product, the way you can be aspirational and picture yourself um, bringing those designs to your home. So it's going to be quite different depending upon the sort of retailer you are. But I think the way you unearth those opportunities is to understand your customers better than the competition, understand um, what's really going to be intensely relevant and a real wow experience for them, and then focus your energies there. But, you know, I think the underlying problem for so many retailers is, you know, they play it too safe. They don't do the customer work they need to. They're afraid to experiment. They're afraid to put the money and the effort behind some of those things. And they just, you know, they're kind of caught in this cycle of incrementalism, I guess you could say, or what I call a slightly better version of mediocre that they think, you know, these little tweaks, you know, adding the coffee bar or just painting the walls or doing a few other things when you're 
when you're just fundamentally not very remarkable, you know, that somehow that's going to make a difference. Interesting. I really like that distinction between the small tweaks versus the big picture change or the big picture thinking that that's really required. Steve, this has been a really fantastic conversation. I've loved learning more about, you know, your process, the, the work that you've done and how that has boiled down into your n- new book. Again, congratulations. Um, before I let you go, you know, we try to do a little speed round with our guests just to uh, get those gut reactions, um, you know, gut responses around some personal questions. Would you be down? Sure. Excellent. So first question, which retailer, and you can only pick one, do you think is truly remarkable? I think there are quite a few. I think if I had to pick a a bigger one, I think I'd pick Nike right now, just as a big brand that's, I think, executing a lot of innovation in a lot of different ways. Great. Good choice. Best store you've been in over the past year? Well, I don't know if it's the best. I'd say it's probably the most fun, which is a concept called Camp which is only in a couple of cities right now, New York and Dallas, toy, a toy store, I guess, but a toy store done in a really, in a really different way. Great. What tech do you think will rise to the top in 2020? And by rise to the top, I mean retailers actually embracing, getting a lot of value out of. Well, I think there's already a lot of momentum, but I would probably say, I'm not sure how to best encapsulate it, but it's physical store and website integration. So buy online, pick up in store, buy online, return in store, you know, that sort of technology, which I think, you know, is also being put in place now, as we talked about earlier with curbside pickup. I think just not only responding to the current crisis, but I think more and more retailers are realizing that the store can be a real asset if it's well integrated with digital channels. Great. And I think the just situation we're in may change that, benchmark for success, right? Or what or what the status quo should be. So that'll be yeah. interesting to keep an eye on. Um, the direct-to-consumer DTC market, is it mm-hmm. here to stay? Will it fills it all out? What do you think is going to happen there? Well, I, I tend, and I don't, you, can, you can tell me if this is where your question is going, I, I tend to break D to C into two different camps. The more traditional D to C, which would be, well, has become more vendors going direct to consumer through their own stores and through emphasizing e-commerce. So that's a lot of the luxury brands. That's Nike, as I mentioned earlier, Canada Goose, you know, there's a whole Columbia, whole host of those. And then the newer sort of disruptor, so-called disruptor, digitally native vertical brands. I think in the case of the vendors, I think that is absolutely going to continue. I think it's harder and harder for retail partners to add value in their physical stores and there's going to be continued consolidation there. And it's just really in the interest of, you know, whether it's a high-end luxury brand or it's Columbia, Patagonia, Nike, you name it, to have that direct relationship with the consumer, which, you know, they now can do basically enabled by the internet and uh, e-commerce and as well as their own stores. I think among the digitally native vertical brands, I've been fairly skeptical of, of most of these brands for a while and have written quite a lot about it. And I bring this out in my book. I think that, and it's largely because many of these businesses really aren't that scalable, either the size of the market and or the cost of of going to market. And I think the current, so I've been predicting, I've started to predict that we'll see a big shakeout among these disruptor digitally native vertical brands. And I think the COVID-19 scenario is only going to accelerate that both because of the decrease in demand, but also I think it's going to be very difficult for some of these brands that need to raise a bunch of capital to actually uh, make that happen or, or raise the amount of capital they need to. Yeah, that'll be interesting to watch. 
Great. Well, Steve, you've topped the list of many top influencers to follow. But I have to ask you, which retail influencers do you love to follow? Well, quite a lot. And um, well, two two folks I'll mention that aren't retail influencers per se are Seth Godin and Scott Galloway. Um, I've known Seth since college, and he was nice enough to blurb the front cover of my book. And I think Scott's just a, I know he's he's sometimes, he can be a polarizing figure, but I appreciate his intelligence and his ability to be provocative. More um, retail-centric, I guess. You know, there are a lot. Jason Goldberg, Brendan Witcher, Deb Weinswig, Sucharita Kodali. I mean, there's just a lot. I really enjoy hearing different perspectives. Some of these folks have been nice enough to read some of my stuff and, and challenge it. And so that's just made me uh, better. But, you know, they just cover and have experience that that I don't. So I always like to try to learn from from people and synthesize and then sometimes creatively steal uh, what they get, what they come up with. There's plenty of ideas in, in my book, which I hopefully um, gave proper accreditation to or, or footnotes or what have you from, from some of those folks and others. Great. And finally, to close out, Steve, we talked a lot about the book, but share a final pitch to all the executives listening. I don't know if this is a pitch as much as you know, saying, number one, you know, this too shall pass. And, uh, one of my favorite sayings from, from Buddhist psychology is that pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. So I hope we'll remember that. But, you know, the main thing and, and part of the lesson in the book is that, you know, we just have to be willing to take more chances. And, you know, it's actually more risky to stay still than to actually put yourself out there. So I hope people will take more chances. I hope they'll be willing to get started and Maybe this, this current period will create a little bit of space or fear or whatever it is that motivates people to, to maybe change some of the ways they've been going about their lives and their business. Wonderful call to action to close things out, Steve. Thanks again so much for taking the time out. Sure. And um, again, everyone out there listening, Remarkable Retail is uh, out now. So we're going to include a link in the show notes so you can just do a quick click and uh, add it to your cart. So Steve, thanks again so much for taking the time out. And uh, thanks everyone out there for listening. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.